We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Mark Jacobson. He's professor of civil and environmental engineering and senior fellow of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. He's focused his career on better understanding air pollution and other problems related to global warming. Since 2008, he's been researching large-scale clean renewable energy solutions from wind to nuclear power. Not surprisingly, he found that wind, water, and solar were the most ideal. Although nuclear is low carbon, he doesn't think it's a viable solution to address climate change. We'll discuss why nuclear power plants might have too many barriers to make it a practical option and learn why replacing fossil fuels with clean electricity, like in our cars or our cooking stoves, is part of the solution for climate change. Today, we find that nuclear is not even a possible solution to global warming. It takes so long between planning and operation, like around 14 to 15 years on average. Today is 2020. If you have to wait 15 years, that's 2035 before you could even get one more nuclear plant up. And we need 80% of the problem solved by 2030. So if you have to solve 80% of the problem in 10 years and you can't even get one nuclear power up in 15 years, it's not even a potential solution whatsoever. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. We have heard for some years now, and I dare say those calls are recently becoming stronger, that we should embrace nuclear energy to meet the planet's needs for power. You disagree for many reasons. When did you first realize that nuclear was not the answer to our energy problems and why? Well, I first started looking at this in detail in around 2008. I had been starting to look at different energy solutions to global warming, air pollution, and energy security. And so I decided to try to evaluate all these different energy technologies agnostically, looking not at their costs at the time, but just at their impacts or benefits or costs to the environment and other things like land use or water supply, toxicity in the ecosystem, air pollution mortality, climate, and also even reliability on the grid. And so I did this evaluation of all these different energy sources and concluded after um, looking at these that if you just want to solve the problem of global warming 
and air pollution, wind and water and solar power technologies were the best. And then the worst of the ones that I was evaluating were, uh, for example, biofuels, because they still caused air pollution and carbon capture. And and nuclear was somewhere in between. It had some benefits. It was relatively lower carbon than carbon capture or biofuels, but it was more the other issues associated with it were the main problems. It took so long between planning and operation of a nuclear plant compared to a wind farm or solar farm that that actually resulted in additional emissions while you're waiting around for the nuclear plant to be built. Then you're basically burning coal and gas and emitting a lot. And then there was nuclear weapons proliferation. Several countries had developed weapons secretly under the guise of civilian nuclear energy programs. There was a known meltdown risk of nuclear. In fact, 1.5% of all nuclear reactors to date today have melted down to some degree. And then there was waste issues. What do you do with all the radioactive waste? And then there's mining issues. So you had all these other problems associated with nuclear. And everything that was found in that 2008 study uh, has found not only to be true, but even to be stronger truth. And so today we find that nuclear is not even a possible solution to global warming that takes so long between planning and operation, but like around 14 to 15 years on average. Today is 2020. If you have to wait 15 years, that's 2035 before you could even get one more nuclear plant up. And we need 80% of the problem solved by 2030. So if you have to solve 80% of the problem in 10 years and you can't even get one nuclear power up in 15 years, it's not even a potential solution whatsoever. What are some of the practical issues with building new plants and why is that a problem? You need to find a location. You need to get a permit for the site. You need to get financing. There's all sorts of levels of approval construction itself takes a long time and then get it actually connected to the grid for pretty much every nuclear reactor ever built it's on the order of 10 to 19 years between planning and operation i mean the time lag is actually getting longer and longer i mean some plants today they're taking 20 years even there are cost overruns it's just financially it's these are boondoggles if you want to waste money really easily just plant a nuclear plant. That's the bottom line. There are some other practical issues, not just the money and the time, but also the nuclear waste. And to me personally, I feel like that's really the big problem because some of the waste lasts 200,000 years. And as you mentioned, of course, we have to try and solve this global warming problem essentially in the next 10 years or find a solution that is going to get us on the right path. And here we have a waste problem that's going to last us 200,000 years. And so it seems that this is maybe, from even that standpoint alone, the wrong solution. What are the costs of maintaining nuclear waste? Right now, there's no like one repository in the United States or around the world where all nuclear waste goes. And so basically, nuclear waste piles up at individual nuclear reactors. To maintain it safely, they have these big uh, canisters that are maintained in buildings, and so those buildings require energy. And you can imagine that you have to keep the energy going in these buildings for hundreds of thousands of years. So if you actually account for all that, you find that nuclear is going to uh, create this huge cost uh, just to deal with the waste for a long, long time after the plant goes down. And even decommissioning the plant itself takes 50 to 70 years, uh, which most people ignore. 
it's hard to even imagine that this is a solution to any you know, problem where we need to replace all fossil fuels with clean energy. Well, right now we have around 400 active reactors. And to power the entire world with nuclear, you would need about 15,000 to 16,000 reactors. So you can imagine the waste that's accumulating now would go up by a factor of 40. It's something that you're just kicking the can down the road for future generations to deal with. So you mentioned that some nuclear plants have been decommissioned. Nuclear plants don't run forever. Why is that? Yeah, well, they have a design life of somewhere between 40 and 50 years. Sometimes they get extensions of this. As they get older, they require more maintenance, so their costs go up. So instead of being up like 90% of the time, they're up like 70% of the time. In the U.S., many plants that are near the end of their life, or even not even near the end of their life, they're requesting subsidies from the state governments to keep them open. Nuclear has been subsidized from the beginning, but uh, they didn't require additional subsidies. But now, because costs are so high to keep these things going, they require subsidies. So like New York is subsidizing three upstate reactors to the tune of like $7 billion. Those are staggering numbers. And as a New York state taxpayer, I did not know that. You mentioned also the risk of meltdown, and that is a real risk, although, of course, the number of meltdowns as a percentage is relatively small. Still, some of them have been catastrophic, like Chernobyl and Fukushima. What is the real fallout of meltdown? Well, I should point out that Fukushima alone, there were three reactors that melted down. And then there's Chernobyl, there's Three Mile Island, there's in France that had a meltdown. There are 400 plus reactors in the world, and if you have six of them that have melted down, that's 1.5%. When people see the number, that's like, you know, one little accident, but it isn't. It's it's much more. The risk-reward is totally different. Well, I get, well 1.5% sounds small, but actually, if you thought of like 1.5% of all airplanes flying fell to the ground and crashed, you'd think that's an unacceptable risk. And for most catastrophic risks, that's really unacceptable for any industry. I would say as small as like 0.1% or 0.01%. What's happening like in Fukushima, the damage has been on the order of $500 billion plus to clean that up. And if you think, okay, there are 400 reactors in the world, that's over a billion dollars per reactor. When you actually account for the meltdown costs, and if you account for Chernobyl's costs and all the other reactor meltdown costs, you get a much, much higher cost of energy. So this is why it's just silly to even think that it's a possibility to use nuclear to actually make inroads into the global warming problem. It's mostly people with a financial interest in nuclear who really are pushing this because the nuclear industry can make a huge amount of money. They can propose one nuclear plant and then this has happened pretty much for every nuclear plant ever built. They'll run out of money and say, we need more money. We're halfway through. And so the choice is, well, do you abandon something that you've already spent a lot of money in or do you give them more? And they end up giving them more. And this is what happens every time. And so you end up spending a lot of money for a very limited value. They throw good money after bad. But in any case, I've seen some of your videos and I've read the things that you've written. 
What are the things that you think we are misunderstanding or what are the most common misconceptions about the use of nuclear power? So in theory, it's a, an ideal kind of energy source, but it's just in practice, from what we've seen, it just has so many problems. The people who really like it, and often they're nuclear physicists, they're people who have maybe spent their careers uh, arguing for nuclear, being advocates for it, and now they don't want to backtrack because they've just invested so much of their thoughts and desires into pushing for nuclear. There's been a lot of people who are invested in it, and it's a big industry. So it's really an information issue because yeah, most people are just not aware of the problems, and the people who are supporting it just ignore the problems or they hide them or they attack the people who are, who are showing the problem. It's not a tough issue from a scientific point of view. It's pretty obvious what's going on. Nuclear does not help and it will not help solve the climate problem going forward. It's really a useless solution. You are actually a specialist in the other renewable energy. You're a proponent for wind, solar, and water. Tell us about how they can sustain our energy needs in terms of the criticism coming from the nuclear people who say, look, you don't have a constant stream of energy coming up because when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing, nuclear is there, it's dependable. What's your rebuttal to this? That's like a, another piece of misinformation that the nuclear people like to say, that nuclear is dependable. It's not dependable for two reasons. Um, one, the demand for energy is variable. It goes, it's high at, like in the late afternoon and it's low at night. And nuclear is, when it's on, it's constant. It just produces a constant amount of energy. So it doesn't meet the peaks in demand or the valleys in demand. It gives you a constant output of energy. And the key is you have to match the demand exactly with the supply. If your demand is variable and you have a constant supply you're not matching, you need a backup. So you need natural gas or, or hydropower or something else. And now wind and solar don't meet the demand either. Okay? So neither wind or solar or nuclear meets demand. So they all need some kind of backup. But nuclear is actually even more problematic because in the U.S. it's down between 10 and 15% of the hours of the year for maintenance. Nuclear plants are big, so they have this huge amount of constant energy, and, and then all of a sudden it goes to zero. Then you need something else for 10 to 15% of the hours of the year to back that up. Whereas wind farms, for example, one wind turbine is down like 1% to 2% of the hours of the year for maintenance. Even when a wind turbine is down for maintenance, all the other ones are still running, so you hardly notice the change in wind energy. So... They're both variable. In both cases, though, you do need to meet the demand. So how do you do it with renewables? Well, there are multiple ways. First, we have plans to transition states and countries to 100% renewable energy for all purposes. So that's electricity, transportation, heating, cooling, and buildings, industry. We would electrify transportation, use electric cars, some hydrogen fuel cell for long-distance transport. We'd use electric heat pumps for building heating and cooling, and we'd electrify industry with high temperature and electric processes. When you electrify all energy sectors, it's actually easier to match power demand with supply because you have more what are called flexible loads where you don't need the electricity instantly. For example, an electric car has a battery, 
So you don't need to attach a wind turbine to the car. You can actually charge the battery any time of day or night. So you can power the car when there's excess solar or wind available uh, during the day or night or when the electricity price is the cheapest, which really reflects if there's an availability of wind or solar. And utilities can give people incentives to use electricity at certain times of day or night, and that's called demand response, and that's used throughout the world right now uh, to control the demand for energy. Then there's also storage that's available. Hydroelectric power is basically a big battery, and there's a lot of hydroelectric power in a lot of places that can be used to meet peaks. There's also gravitational storage where you have excess electricity and you lift a concrete block. And then when you need the electricity, you lower the block. You can store heat seasonally between summer and winter underground in boreholes and water pits and aquifers. And there's hydrogen for the hydrogen economy for transportation, which when you have excess wind and excess solar, you can uh, use the excess to produce hydrogen. You can use it to produce heat and cold and then store the heat and cold. There are many opportunities for renewable energy, and we need to basically build a system to put them all together so that we can meet the demand when we have it. How complicated is that? Well, we developed plans for 143 countries to transition entirely to clean renewable energy, and then we did a grid study to see, can we keep the grid stable in all these countries? And we did that by breaking the world up into 24 regions that we had interconnected grids. And we found that we can keep the grid stable for all energy with just wind, water, and solar for every region of the world at low cost. The benefits are not only that it's low cost, but you're using about 57% less energy Uh, when you transition to clean renewable energy and, then, and electrify everything, you eliminate the energy going into mining, transporting, and refining fossil fuels and uranium, which is about 12% of all the energy worldwide. Heat pumps for building heating and cooling are much more efficient than gas heaters or oil-based heaters. Electric heat pumps use one-fourth to one-fifth the energy because they actually just move heat around. They don't actually create it. And... So worldwide, you reduce power demand another 13% just on average by going to heat pumps. And then we reduce demand another 23% by going to electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles versus internal combustion engine vehicles because of the efficiency of electric vehicles over combustion vehicles. We also eliminate another 3% or 4% of energy needs by electrifying industry. And there's end-use energy efficiency improvements beyond fossil fuel cases of another six or seven percent. So when you add all that up, that's a 57 percent reduction of power demand due to electrifying everything and providing the electricity with wind, water, and solar compared to fossil fuels. That drives a huge cost reduction because if you're using 57 percent less energy, even if the cost per unit energy is the same, in fact, the cost per unit energy is also a little bit cheaper. So we find that worldwide, you know, the aggregate cost savings of energy is about 60%. And then there's health cost savings and climate cost savings. And when you add those in, there's like a 90% reduction of what we call the social cost. We also find we create 28.5 million more long-term full-time jobs with clean renewable energy worldwide. It is possible to transition. It's cheaper, creates jobs, and it's healthier. There's really no downside to doing this. And we can do it everywhere in the world. What's it going to take to get us to 80% by 2030? As an everyday person, what are two things that I could be doing? 
Yeah, well, there, there are a lot of things that individuals can do, and then there are policies that really need to be put in place at the state, local, and federal government levels. So individuals can transition their own homes. If you're building a new home, that's probably the easiest. You just don't put gas on your property in the first place. I did that in a new home I built in 2017. I've been running with just pure electric for two and a half years. I have not paid an electric bill because I have solar on the roof, I have batteries in the garage, I have heat pumps, so everything's really efficient. I'm hardly using any energy. No electric bill, no natural gas bill. I have electric cars, no gasoline bill. In fact, I produce more electricity than I use. And so the utility, which is what's called a community choice aggregation utility, will actually pay for the excess electricity I use. I've been paid like $550 on average per year for the excess electricity. For existing homes, you can get rid of everything that burns gas. Get rid of your natural gas water heater. Get rid of gas heating for your home. Go to heat pumps, air heating, and air conditioning. Basically, anything that burns gas in your home, get rid of it. Some people can't put solar on the roof, for example, because they're in an apartment, but you can actually sign up with a community choice utility that will procure 100% renewable electricity for you. And it's the same cost effectively as your regular utility costs. Also support policymakers who support renewable energy. There are actually 14 states and territories in the U.S. that have subscribed either through laws or executive orders to 100% renewable electricity by certain dates. Uh, most recently, Rhode Island, there was an executive order by the governor to go to 100% uh, renewable electricity for the state by 2030. You know, most states are 2040, 2045, some are 2050 uh, to go to 100%. But there are 14 of them, including the big ones like New York and California. There are actually 10 countries of the world that are at 100% renewable electricity in the annual average, or one of these 10 is, will be, in 2020, it'll be 100%. So these include Costa Rica, Iceland, Norway, Tajikistan, Albania, Paraguay, Uruguay, Bhutan, Kenya, and Scotland. This is super promising. Well, on that note, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Well, I'm hopeful because the technology's here, the costs have come down, I see lots of commitments and a mass movement to go to 100% renewable energy. There are 61 countries that have laws to go to 100% renewable. In the U.S., there are 145 cities or so that have laws or commitments to go to 100% renewable worldwide. There are about 250 cities. There are 220-plus international businesses that have committed, including eight out of the 10 biggest businesses in the world, and uh, at least three of them have met the 100% goal already for their global operations. Uh, this 80% of the people want it, uh, so there's a big desire to go to 100%. I feel confident that we can do it, and there are many benefits in terms of energy cost reductions, health cost reductions, climate cost reductions, job creation, relatively little land use, there's a lot to be positive for, but there are challenges because there are people who oppose it. There are people who don't believe there's a problem that we need to solve. There are a lot of people who have vested interest. So it's really important to get the information out, what's possible and what are the benefits, and to cut through a lot of the misinformation by people who are really criticizing the use of renewables as moving forward. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and thank you for your extensive scholarship on this issue. Well, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. 
My prior misconception was about the vast advantage of storing nuclear waste over emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And what I really learned today was that the problem with nuclear energy is neither the technology nor the waste. It's the practical issues of permitting and building a plant in time and on budget. In the time that it takes to build and fund a new plant, we are developing cheaper and more efficient solar and wind energy technology. We're also building more efficient homes. And finally, I didn't understand the total impact we could have in reducing demand for energy if we commit to electrifying most of our lives, whether we're committed to driving electric cars, to using electric stoves, or using heat pumps in our homes. Of course, it is then hugely important to make sure that we generate electricity in a clean way instead of burning coal. After this conversation, I'm still for leaving the existing nuclear power plants running until we have enough wind, solar, and water energy capacity. I am deeply disturbed by the increasing costs to keep the plants in New York State functional, but that's definitely better than building a new fossil fuel-powered plant. Next week, our guest is Dr. Ken Bissler, Director of the Center for Marine and Environmental Radioactivity and Senior Scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. He specializes in the study of natural and man-made radioactive elements. We'll be talking about tracking radioactivity in the Pacific after the Fukushima Daiichi accident, how we should be thinking about radioactivity, and how you can support ocean science and ocean health. You can be for and against nuclear power, but just don't scare people from swimming, say, off California, because we can measure cesium there. We've always been able to measure cesium there ever since we tested nuclear weapons. So Fukushima Daiichi, the accidents and the earthquake were 2011. By 2014, along the coastline, we're seeing much lower levels of cesium on the west coast of North America. Swimming every single day in the ocean for eight hours would cause an additional dose, so health risk from the cesium, but it was about a thousand times less risky than a single dental x-ray. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbul. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.